Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This, is, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. So Father, speak to us, help us understand the Lord Jesus and what it means for him to be our better high priest through your word, I pray. Again, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So most of us didn't wake up this morning here in beautiful, sunny Sonoma County thinking something like this, I sure hope my high priest is up to date on his repentance. When he offers that blood sacrifice this year, I really feel the need for atonement. I hope he does a good job at the most holy place, right? We, we don't think in those terms. I heard that, by the way, from um, a speaker many years ago. 
And it's true, we don't think in those terms. We don't, we don't think about high priest. Maybe if, if we've had a Roman Catholic connection, background, maybe there's some understanding of the priesthood, but, but we don't think that way. As we looked last week at the first part of this chapter, we don't think in terms of kings. We aren't concerned about the king. Well, one, we don't have one, right? Number two, the closest we have is Queen Elizabeth. And as I said last week, so cool, 70 years um, and, uh, and so on. But it's just so different. And even if you're from the United Kingdom, it's, it's a constitutional monarchy, right? So it's, it's got its limits. It's, it's just different. We don't think in terms of the priesthood, the kingdom. Like these categories are not often on our mind. In fact, if they were on your mind this morning, you got to come tell me later and I'll buy you dinner because I would be surprised. I would be surprised. What are we thinking about when we get up in the morning? We're, we're thinking about ourselves. <laughs> I'm thinking, man, it's cold in my house. I'm thinking, I got to do my lap around the block as I do every morning. Is it, should I do it? It's so cold. I'm thinking about that cup of coffee that's waiting for me when I get done. I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking about my family. I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about our world. I'm thinking about church this morning. Maybe you were thinking about some of these similar kinds of things. If, if you were thinking about church, maybe you were thinking about things like this. I hope we sing songs that I like or songs that I know. I hope, I hope we don't have another Bible lecture on Melchizedek. <laughs> that was a joke from last week, if you didn't know. Maybe you're wondering about, I wonder if there's going to be a snack today. Honestly, I had those thoughts about church. Not today, I had them earlier in the week. You get my point. We are so far removed from what I just read. It's difficult for us to, to, to grasp this stuff. And probably there's a little bit of, oh, so what? Let's, let's get on with something practical. But I, I want us to pause, partly because the text is our text. God and his providence, we sang about it, we thought about it with our catechism today. We'll get there even more in the weeks to come. Uh, God is at work. It's no accident no accident, no happenstance that this is our passage, that you're here, that we sang what we sang. Yes, there's planning that happens and there's decisions that could be made, but God knows all of this and we need to slow down and we need to grasp these things. The teaching of this, this book, Hebrews, Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, is so important to us. And really, I think a lot of us Christians, we take for granted a lot of things Maybe we've just grown up in it and we've heard it and, oh yeah, I knew that, I've learned that. And, and the, the book of Hebrews, this sermonic letter is foundational for so much of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what we believe, what sets Christianity apart. So it's good for us to dive in and consider yet once more priesthood and Melchizedek and how Melchizedek's priesthood is better than Levitical and how Jesus is, is of that Melchizedek line and, and what it means and what it means. And so this morning, my hope is that we can do two main things, okay? If you're taking notes or you'd like to just kind of know an outline form where we're going, as we look at Hebrews 7, 11 through 28, two big movements. Number one, why we need a better priest, okay? That's the first thing we're going to take a look at. And then secondly, what makes Jesus our better priest? Why we need a better priest, number one, and then what makes Jesus our better priest? What makes his priesthood superior? That's kind of a general way of looking at, at our, our set of verses today. 
So Hebrews chapter 7, beginning of verse 11. Now briefly, before we get to why we need a better priest and what makes Jesus our better priest, a brief review uh, of where where we're at. We come in chapter 7 to what one writer calls the culmination of this author. We don't know right who wrote Hebrews. Keep reminding you of that. I need to remind myself of that too. We're not sure who. But this writer, this pastor, author, this person who cares about a group of people but who has a sermon to give, he, he finally now is at a culminating point on what we could call the treatment of the, the son as the superior high priest. Now, he's already talked about it in chapter 5. There, he, he kind of gave an introduction to the subject of Jesus being the superior high priest. Then, what we looked at mostly in last week's passage, it was demonstrated that the Melchizedekian priesthood, this, this character who shows up just three verses, Genesis 14, like out of nowhere, has this encounter with Abraham, and yet, a thousand years later, David, being inspired by God, pens this psalm. That says, Yahweh, the Lord, said to my Lord, the Messiah, and, and, and there's this reference that you are not only a king, but you are a priest after Melchizedek, that guy that shows up just once, three verses. Like, it really is staggering. But the writer of the Hebrews thinks it's a big deal, and so Melchizedek's name has come up a bunch. And finally, last week, we, we poured into this, this recognition that his priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood, is superior to the Levitical priest. And then now in our verses today, 11 to 28, Psalm 110 verse 4 comes up yet again. The most quoted, uh, Psalm 110 is the most quoted uh, chapter of the Old Testament, quoted in the New Testament. And once again, our, our writer has something to say uh, of the superior, superiority of Jesus who is in this line of Melchizedekian priesthood as opposed to the Levitical priesthood. So, we, we understood Melchizedek last week. I, I know you all went home and taught it to someone else because it was just so ravaging. But now we move on to understand, to understand how Jesus, in being in that line of the priesthood of Melchizedek, um, matches this, this, like I'm calling it today, he's our better high priest. He's superior, but this idea of being better is really at uh, the forefront of this. So then, why we need a better priest. So let's look at verses 11 and 12 as we, as we start. Now, if perfection, let me just stop um, before I read. We, we have to remember about this word perfection. Um, we, we hear that and we think of being perfect, right? That makes sense. Um, but, but this word has many words, even in, in our day. Words have a range of meaning depending on context and other things. And it doesn't mean here, and even in Hebrews, it comes up a couple different times, um, it doesn't mean without flaw. It, it has more of the idea, okay, again, it's a nuance of meaning, different ranges of meaning. It means more of, of what one writer calls arriving at a desired end or reaching a goal, okay? Perfection, arriving at a desired end, reaching a goal. Not, not only or even explicitly of, of being perfectly without flaw, but again, of arriving at a desired end, reaching a goal, okay? And that desired end refers to 
the type of a relationship established between God and his people. Okay, so now back to verse 11. If perfection, if arriving at this desired uh, end, this reaching a goal of this relationship with God and his people, if that had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, that is the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law, right? The law and the priesthood, they go together. Well, if, if that was attainable, this, this perfection, this reaching this desired end, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named for the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So the author is asking a rhetorical question. If, if really this, this right relationship with God, this, this reaching this goal, this perfection could have been reached under the priests and law, then why? Why did God set it up that Jesus, according to Psalm 110, would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek? I mean, that's still his argument. The, the, the Bible says so. Psalm 110 says that Jesus would be a different kind of priest. Why? Why was it necessary? And he answers, he's going to go on to answer that, well, the reason is the, the law couldn't do it. And we'll see that here in a moment. There's, there's a need. Why a need for a better priest? Because the old covenant, the law, the priesthood, it could not get us to this place of being in a right relationship with God. It, it's not that the law and the old Testament covenant and the priesthood were bad. No, they just, they were inferior. They, they were provisional. They were pointing to something better, something greater. And so this need for a new priesthood, again, points to Psalm 110. This has been alluded to a few different times already in Hebrews. Um, if, if that first priesthood were fine, then there isn't a need for this one to arrive. But in fact, this one has, has arisen. Verse 12, he goes on. For when there is a change in the priesthood, which now there is, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And that's basically saying uh, there's going to be a new covenant, which is going to supersede the old covenant. And we're going to pick that theme up into chapter 8, Lord willing, next weekend and uh, the week after that. This understanding of, okay, the old, the first covenant, and now the, the new covenant brought by our Lord Jesus Christ. So we need a new and better priest because the first priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, it, it could not cleanse us and make us fit to dwell with God. So then for the remainder then this morning, this kind of second big point. So what makes Jesus then our better priest? I'm going to use uh, Michael Kruger's four points, the way he summarizes them, are nice, easily understood points, and we'll kind of work our way through. So the first, the first reason that, that Jesus is our better priest, we're going to see, is in fact that Jesus is from a better tribe. Jesus is from a better tribe. Most of us don't think all that much about uh, where we're from and, and our lineage. I mean, we do. And of course, ancestor testing is popular and it's fun to learn different things. But most of us aren't, you know, walking around daily, like asking things and, you know, making judgments based on things. I mean, it does happen. 
But, but again, it's not as important to us as it was to God's people, Israel, especially, again, in the Old Testament. It, it mattered from whose tribe you were descended from, right? If you think back, if you know your Bible, the tribes were given parts of the land, some smaller parts, some bigger parts, and, and so forth. And uh, some tribes seem to have greater honor and, and all these different things. And so for God's people in the Old Testament, it, it was a big deal which tribe you came from. And it was from the tribe of Levi that the priests came. But we see something begin to change. And as again, uh, Michael Kruger calls it, Jesus is from a better tribe. And it doesn't mean that other tribes aren't good. It's just as the author of Hebrews is going to point out, there's something better about being from the tribe of Judah as it relates to Jesus as the better high priest. So verses 13 and 14. For the one of whom these things are spoken, that's Jesus, the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So it's a fact, it's evident Jesus is from Judah. And Moses, when he talked about the priests, said, no, no, priests are to be from the tribe of, of Levi. But, but of Judah, there was nothing ever said about, about priests. And again, we looked at it briefly last week. I mentioned it, I should say. Um, there, there was an understanding. The Levites, they took care of the priestly work. And, and I was talking to Daniel Flores, the gentleman who's preached here several times. Uh, we were talking about this this week. Even though we don't traffic in the priesthood and we don't wake up thinking about our priests, right, and, and our kings, just, just think, even what little we do know, that the difference, I mean, a priest is dealing with, with animals and blood and right, making atonement for sins. I mean, I mean, it's messy. It's dirty. It stinks, literally. Like, it's like just, just all the time. A king has got nice royal garments and has got a seat and others. And I mean, talk about a juxtaposition. They're different, different roles under the old covenant. And what I mentioned last week, for God's people, they knew, according to the law, that unless you were a priest of the tribe of Levi, you shouldn't do priestly things. You shouldn't make sacrifices. Fast forward into the time of the Davidic kingdom, or I'm sorry, before the Davidic kingdom, in 1 Samuel 13, Saul, the first king of Israel, he is impatient. He's tired of waiting for Samuel, who was supposed to come and offer a sacrifice. And so Saul thinks, well, what would it hurt for me just to do this? And, and he makes a sacrifice. And Samuel shows up. And 1 Samuel 13 tells us that, that to put it mildly, Samuel was disappointed in Saul, but it was a, it was a picture of Saul's disregard for God's law. And, and again, we read those things and go, what's the big deal? He did the sacrifice. But again, according to God, no, that's for the priests. Kings don't do that. So again, for David to be well aware of what his predecessor had done and then to be inspired to speak of this one who is a king who, who's going to have his foot on his enemies, right? The, the footstool. And then in the same Psalm 110, to say, you're a priest. Like there was this, this idea that, wow, that's right. That Melchizedek guy 
He was a king and he was a priest. So it's not intrinsically wrong for kings and priests to do the same thing. But under our laws, under our provisions from God, they're to be separate. But there's one who's coming who, like Melchizedek, will be able to do both. Because he's not from, he's not from Levi. He, in fact, is from Judah. So he doesn't have that, that rule, if you will. Jesus is like no other priest. He is a priest. He can also rule as a king. He can not only save us as a priest, he can also care for us and protect us as a king. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So what makes Jesus better? First, he's of a better tribe in that he can do these things. Number two, Jesus lives forever. Let's take a look now at verses 15 through 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him. Again, quoting Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This idea of, of, of Jesus reigning forever and what he does being indestructible, and, and there's other like synonyms used. Again, the point is being made that Jesus, he lives forever. Let, let's jump for a minute uh, ahead to verses 23 through 25. The former priests, they were many in number. Why? Well, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They died, right? And so there was always a change in in who was high priest. Verse 24, but he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently. Really, the idea is it's unchanging. It, It won't change because, here it is again, he continues forever. And then verse 25, and this could be one you underline. This is, this could be the climactic verse of the whole passage. Consequently, consequently, because he holds this office in an unchanging permanent way because he continues forever, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost. That means save completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? I know kids ask that. We were asked that by our kids, right? Is it just a little like sincerely at the end of a prayer? No, we, we pray in Jesus' name for verse, because of verses like this. Those who draw near to God through him. Our drawing near to God is only because we can through him who lives forever, who's unchanging. And he always lives to make intercession for us. Again, I love this, this point from Michael Kruger. Most people in ancient Israel may not even have put two and two together regarding the problem presented by the priestly system and the fact that priests would die. If the person you're relying on to intercede for you will die, well, that means the effectiveness of the intercession has some uncertainty. How could we have eternal security without an eternal representative. But Jesus, unlike any other priest, will always, 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 can I get another always? Be there for you. 
Eternity is a scary thing, but in Jesus we can rest secure. Let that sit for a moment. He lives forever. His priesthood is forever. He's not going to die. We're not going to have to worry about who's going to succeed him and is there a succession plan in place. And notice the end of verse 25. He always lives, he's alive, to make intercession for them. I think it's just been in the last couple of years that those words, along with similar words in Romans 8, I'm going to read them in a moment, have, have struck me. And again, right, theology, what we understand about God, the study of God, what the scriptures say, that's, that's the main place we, we understand God and Christ and the spirit and like all of it, right? It, it matters. It matters. He always lives to make intercession. That, that means he's praying for them. That's us. So now Romans 8, verses 31 to 34. Listen to how the apostle Paul talked about this. The great Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Hey, it is God who justifies. Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that was raised. Who is, here it is, at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So in this string of rhetorical questions, right? What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, right? Who can bring a charge against us? No one. Who will condemn us? No, like there's nothing because something has happened. God who gave his son, who actually gave him up for us, sent him to the cross on our behalf. The one who then was, was buried and then was raised and now has been ascended is at the right hand who indeed is interceding for us. Again, we don't have to worry, is he going to be too old up there and not be able to do it? Our better high priest doesn't die. And he doesn't have to keep offering sacrifices. We'll see that in the text. It's, it's been done once and for all. Now, as high priest, he prays for us. Do you need prayer? I do, like daily, right? And, and I ask people to pray for me. And, and the one that I ask people to pray to for me and the one that I pray to, the Father, through the Son, the reason I can draw near, and the Son's, in fact, there interceding as well. You know, when Jesus lived, we have a couple of different accounts where he prayed for people. John 17, of course, is a great example, a great prayer for his apostles and disciples then, but also for those who would follow in the ages to come, which includes us. Or how about this one, Luke chapter 22. Um, Peter, good old Peter, always 
quick to be out front and, and want to do anything and everything for his master, but then always wanted to put his foot in his mouth. Um, Jesus says this. He says, Peter, I, I've prayed for you. Satan has asked to sift you like weed. Well, pause right there. So, so in that moment, the son, who, who, who fully God, fully man, but we know from Philippians, didn't cling to everything related to his divinity. There were things he, as a human, didn't know. He didn't know the times of the end. He said, that's for my father. There were aspects of being God that he, again, he didn't lose, but, but, but having his human nature and his divine nature, he just didn't have those prerogatives. But, but in this moment, he's aware that Satan somehow has asked if he could have Peter to sift him are the words Jesus uses. And, and Jesus says, but I've prayed for you, Peter that after this, you know, you'll in fact make it and you'll in fact be used and, and serve. I don't, you know, Peter plays quite a big role, you know, <laughs> right? He's like Peter and uh, the preacher in Acts and like the head of the, the church there and like he's pretty important. So I'm not worried that Satan is asking to sift me or you, you're not that important either. But, but, but in all seriousness, wow, on earth, Jesus said to Peter, I, I've prayed for you. I mean, just imagine what that would have felt like. So if he prays for Peter, if he prays for us in, in John 17, well, he's praying for our weaknesses. He's pray, praying for our challenges. And what, we, what, what emerges in Hebrews, and again, we, we've seen some of this, right? Part of even though this book, this letter is about Jesus being greater and better than anything and everything, than Moses, than angels, than the priesthood, than, than Old Covenant, all of it, there, there is, because of that, the, the like next layer of purpose of this letter is that we, we don't want to drift away from it. We don't want to turn away from it. We, we need to remain. We need to continue to believe. So it seems that maybe, this is speculation, that, that what our author intends back now in Hebrews, but maybe the Apostle Paul too, but here in Hebrews when it says that he always lives to make intercession, maybe it has to do with our struggles, yes, with temptation generally, but, but maybe he's praying for the temptation to deny our faith, to turn away. I, I'm glad my high priest and your high priest is praying that for us. Okay, back to Hebrews. Now let's get back to verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, that is speaking here again of the commandment uh, under the Levites and, and the law. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For, now in parentheses, the law made nothing perfect. There's that word perfect again. We saw it in verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable, and right, it wasn't. So on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because it's, its weakness, its uselessness, for the law made nothing, no one, anything perfect, whole, right with God. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Again, this contrast between the two priesthoods and, and this recognition that we, we need something better and that something better is a new hope. We aren't dependent upon anymore our own perfection, someone else's sacrifices. And even that, all the while, was always, always pointing forward. 
To speak of a better hope is not, again, simply to, to speak of, uh, of having just subjective feelings, but it's this objective trust and hope of who God is, what he's done, that now this new covenant, this new better priesthood, like it gives us real, genuine hope. It's a better hope. So that is how we draw near to God in a way that no one could before. Not only is Jesus first of a better tribe, and not only does he live forever, but but now, number three, we're going to see briefly that his priesthood is certain. And this flows out of this, this former point, right? If, in fact, his, his priesthood is forever, if he lives forever, well, now we see that his, his priesthood is certain, verses 20 through 22. And it was not without an oath. In other words, it was with an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, right? It was because of their descendant, their, their genealogy, if you will. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, again, Psalm 110.4, and now a different part of Psalm 110.4 that hasn't been at the forefront, the first part. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Again, this flows out of the fact that Jesus is forever. And because he's forever, now his priesthood is, is certain. And it's not because, again, of who his parents and grandparents and great-parents were, but it's because of this oath, the fact that God has sworn. And God doesn't lie. We've seen that in Hebrews. It comes up elsewhere. Under the old covenant arrangement, it didn't last forever. There were new priests all the time. But unlike the old covenant that but now in the new covenant, it's not dependent on whose line you are. It's dependent on this one that has been appointed by this oath, by this, this statement of certainty by God. The Lord has sworn. And God, God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't change his mind. Finally, fourth, Jesus is a perfect priest. So he's from a better tribe. His priesthood is forever and certain. And then fourth, we finally see that his priesthood is, in fact, the perfect priesthood. So verses 26 to 28. For it was indeed fitting. By the way, we've, we've seen that word fitting one other time in, in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Fitting. Now our author returns and uses that word one more time. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, right? One who's of a better tribe, who's forever and certain. And now he goes on to describe his perfection. One who's, listen to these descriptions, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but that word of oath, 
which came later than the law. That's the one we just quoted from Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn, I will not change, he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus, unlike all the other priests, is completely sinless. Sinless, unlike all the other priests, he is completely innocent and unstained. He's the perfect fulfillment. All of, all of this stuff, it was pointing, pointing ahead. The sacrifices, all of it, pointing ahead. And even then, those animals under the Old Testament law, under the Old Testament priesthood, those animals had to be as perfect as could be without spot or blemish. There couldn't be sick animals or crippled animals. Why? Why was God so rigid about that? Because it was pointing. It was pointing. Someone who's guilty can't die for the guilty. Only the innocent can do that. And again, we're going to flesh this out more. What we believe, the theology we hold to as Christians, so much of it is from this sermonic letter. Chapter 8 is for next week, but I want to read verse 1. Now the point in all that we are saying, (laughs) we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. It's like he realizes even his readers who maybe think more about priests than we do, maybe we're a bit more familiar with Melchizedek and kings, he, they still need to be reminded the point and all that I'm saying and all that we're saying, we have such a high priest. So you may not have woken up today concerned about your priest. Good. But I pray and hope that as we go today, as we make our way from our gathering here to events that unfold. We may not have woken up worried about our priest, but we'll be thinking about our priest, the one seated at the right hand, the one who intercedes for us, the one who's there because of an oath, the one whose priesthood is certain because of that oath and who will live forever and who's of the tribe of Judah and he can be both king and priest. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. The point in all this, we have such a priest, church. Would you stand, please, as I pray? We're going to sing one final song this morning. So, Lord, even as Allison mentioned uh, earlier, we can struggle and we do with the events happening around us and around the world and the uncertainty and the evil. But your word reminds us of so many amazing truths. Not only is this world yours, Heavenly Father, and and you hold it in your hand and nothing happens that you don't know and haven't, haven't even planned in your providence and sovereignty. But, but Lord, we have this high priest, this one who's a better high priest than anything that came from the Levitical priesthood. We have this one that Melchizedek pointed toward, that, that even the Levitical priesthood pointed toward, who is forever and eternal and whose priesthood is certain because of your 
your oath. May that help us today as we contemplate our life and our struggles in the world and all of it. And may we worship, may we, in response, not just song, but, but how we live, be worshipers of you for your, your amazing goodness to provide us with this type of priest, who we need, who we need. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for being something greater for us. In Jesus' name.